Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, January 13th, 2023, the 723rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the podcast, the social media, the writing, and, of course, the merch site by visiting linktree.com. Slash I'm your moderator. So another day of the Biden classified document saga. It is continuing on. It continues to look worse for Joe Biden. And there is no explanation forthcoming from the administration, from the Department of Justice, from anyone. Now, you see, it's an open investigation, which means no one can ever talk about it again until the investigation is over. And if that takes a year or two years or 10 years, hey, them's the breaks. 
This is what you have to do for an open investigation. You just let the illegitimate Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. continue to remain in the office of fake president and do as the media tells you. Pretend that absolutely nothing bad happened and that Joe Biden would never do anything wrong because he takes classified materials very seriously. I mean, he said it himself over and over again. He takes them seriously. That's all you need to know. Donald Trump doesn't take them seriously because he's Donald Trump. So it doesn't matter that Biden did something wrong and Trump did something totally legal and normal. What matters is that Biden takes them seriously. Now, no one can explain how all of this happened, but there are attempts to. This is from the Daily Mail this morning. It was just a really, really weird time for everyone. Biden staffers packing up files in his office were worried about Trump's arrival. New report claims after aides were interviewed in the classified documents case. And that was just the headline from the Daily Mail. And Daily Mail headlines are always way too long. Maybe they're having weird, weird times as well. Aides sorting through reams of material during then-Vice President Joe Biden's last days in the White House were packing boxes after hours amid a flurry of activity while eyeing the looming presidency of Donald Trump. Those final days in office in January 2017 came at a time when many Democratic aides were shell-shocked by Trump's victory with many having anticipated a win by Hillary Clinton during a tempestuous campaign that was upended by allegations of hacking, Clinton's email scandal, a public intervention by FBI Director James Comey, and Trump's unusual candidacy and stunning win. It was just a really, really weird time for everyone. A source familiar with the situation told CNN, which reported that aides were busy packing up photos, papers, mementos, even at night, while Biden engaged in a flurry of travel and activities. So you see, everyone was just thrown off their game by how strange it was that Donald Trump was going to be president and not Hillary Clinton. All of their best laid plans were falling apart. They were crumbling to dust right in their hands, sliding out through their fingers, and they could barely struggle to contain it all. It was just so weird. Nothing you could have ever seen coming. Hillary Clinton was going to win. She had to win. They never expected her to lose. Imagine how violated all of the woke millennial aides in the Obama administration must have felt with their safe space being destroyed by reality. How were they supposed to deal with something that was just so, so weird? It's like Brett Easton Ellis wrote the story. Young, apathetic White House aides just wandering around, unable to shake the sense of existential dread they all felt. They were all basically in a haze of quaaludes and psilocybin, mourning the fact that there may not be another trans activist reading poetry in the White House for four more years, or maybe eight, or maybe never again. Who knows? It was just too weird. No one could really tell what was going on. So, hey, some top secret, sensitive, compartmented information, some classified documents ended up all over the place. Some of them were at Joe Biden's 
fake think tank in Washington, D.C. that was also somehow part of the University of Pennsylvania and also just a pass through for CCP money laundering to Joe Biden. And he was an honorary professor for some reason. And so some documents were there. Fine. And then some documents were at his house, which also may have been owned by Hunter Biden. It's a little unclear. Sometimes Joe owns it. Sometimes Hunter owns it. It just depends on the need of a given document and how they're using that document to facilitate, of course, political corruption and criminality. Some of them were in his garage next to his Corvette. And apparently there are more documents all over the place and we will never stop finding more documents. But this is what happens when something as weird as Donald Trump being elected president takes place. All of them were just rocked by reality, totally shaken to their very core. And in that state, they cannot be expected to properly handle classified documents. So the fact that they improperly handled classified documents, well, you're just going to have to get over it. Try to understand the emotional state they were in and forgive them. It's that simple. We all have weird times. We're all familiar with weird times. Hey, for the last three years, people have tried to convince us that masks work and that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes. We know what weird times are like. And in fact, we're in weird times still right now. It's a little hard to tell where this story is going. We're just going to have to wait and see. But it's worth noting that as the central narrative pours out around these Biden documents, and that is what we're getting, the reporting is coming from the New York Times and CBS News and CNN. Within that central narrative, that is mostly being laid out to provide cover and protection for whatever is actually happening below the surface. Inside that central narrative, they're also incorporating the narrative that this might be a takedown attempt against Joe Biden. And of course, outlets like MSNBC are trying to blame all of this on Republicans somehow. Republicans planted these documents, maybe. Well, hey, guys, that's a conspiracy theory. Those are baseless claims. There is no evidence. And of course, yesterday we discussed the possibility that it was a takedown from Biden's own side, from potentially the Obama people and Susan Rice, setting Joe Biden up as a fall guy. Simone Sanders on MSNBC this morning was wondering where the DNC was. Why aren't they providing cover for Joe Biden? And it's a good question. What is the DNC doing? Will there be an effort to protect Joe Biden and keep him in office or are we seeing the lead up to the takedown? So there are a couple of narratives at work, particularly surrounding the naming of the special counsel, Robert Hur, by Attorney General Merrick Garland yesterday. And Cash Patel has been out all over the media circuit talking about the selection of this particular special counsel. So let's hear from him and then we can move on to the Twitter files. This guy, Hur needs to be the first one subpoenaed by the new special select committee under Jim Jordan's authority on the weaponization of government. And do you want to know why? Because her, we have the receipts, Steve, and we're going to release them later. 
was sending communications to the Justice Department and Rod Rosenstein's crew arguing against the release of the Nunes memo, saying that it would bastardize and destroy the United States national security apparatus. This guy is a swamp monster of the tier one level. He's a government gangster. He's now in charge of the continued crime scene cover-up, which is why the first congressional subpoena that has to go out for the weaponization of government subcommittee is against her. So is it a takedown by whom? The Republicans? The Democrats? Who knows? Is it a cover-up? Is it a limited hangout? Is the special counsel there to make sure the public never finds out what's going on? We shall see. Maybe we might get some congressional oversight that will help us get to the bottom of this. So let's go to the Twitter files. Twitter files number 14 by Matt Taibbi, released on Thursday, January 12th. The Russiagate lies. One. The fake tale of Russian bots and the release the memo hashtag. At a crucial moment in a years long furor, Democrats denounced a report about flaws in the Trump Russia investigation, saying it was boosted by Russian bots and trolls. Twitter officials were aghast, finding no evidence of Russian influence. And Taibbi attaches a letter from Twitter to. Senator Dianne Feinstein and Congressman Adam Schiff, dated January 26th, 2018. Dear Senator Feinstein and Representative Schiff, thank you for your letter regarding trending hashtags and concerns over Russian disinformation efforts. Mr. Dorsey has asked me to respond to the issues you raised. Twitter is deeply committed to protecting the integrity of the democratic process, and we value Congress's interest in understanding the role of social media in Russian disinformation efforts. As we have indicated previously, Twitter has conducted an extensive inquiry into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. election. We also continue to strengthen our fight against malicious automation and coordinated efforts to manipulate the Twitter platform, as we have also indicated previously to Congress. Our work addressing such activity has yielded significant progress over the last few years. For example, as a key component of this work, Twitter has established a dedicated information quality team, which focuses on enhancing the strategies we use to detect and stop bad automation, improve machine learning to spot spam, and increase the precision of our tools designed to prevent such content from contaminating our platform. With respect to our analysis of particular hashtags, we welcome the opportunity to share with the committee some initial findings on this issue. We performed a preliminary analysis of available geographical data for tweets with the hashtag release the memo. Our initial inquiry based on available data has not identified any significant activity connected to Russia with respect to tweets posting original content to this hashtag. So no connection between the hashtag release the memo and Russian bots. He also includes a couple more emails here discussing the interaction with Schiff and Feinstein inside Twitter. One says that he's putting the cart before the horse, assuming that this is propaganda or bots. And a Twitter employee remarked, we are feeding congressional trolls. Twitter warned politicians and media 
they not only lacked evidence, but had evidence the accounts weren't Russian and were roundly ignored. On January 18th, 2018, Republican Devin Nunes submitted a classified memo to the House Intel Committee detailing abuses by the FBI in obtaining FISA surveillance authority against Trump-connected figures, including the crucial role played by the infamous Steele dossier. So this is the Nunes memo. This is when the public was first getting some disclosure of what actually happened with the whole Russiagate thing that it was actually created as an op to take down Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not colluding with Russia. All of it was made up. The Steele dossier was fake. All of it was funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC. It was overseen by them. And the Obama-Biden administration, the FBI, and the CIA all had knowledge of this well before the 2016 election. And they did not tell anyone. Taibbi goes on. The Nunes assertions would virtually all be verified in a report by Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz in December 2019. Nonetheless, national media in January and early February of 2018 denounced the Nunes report in oddly identical language, calling it a joke. And Taibbi attaches various news headlines from The Hill, from MSNBC, from The Washington Post. The Nunes memo was a joke. Don't even bother reading it. It's a joke. It's not serious. You can't take it seriously. Don't even read it because it says all these things about what the FBI and others were doing in concocting the Russiagate hoax. And you just don't want to know about that stuff. Don't look at it. Don't read it. And definitely don't discuss it with anyone. If anyone brings it up at all, let that person know this is a joke and you're a joke. You don't have to know about the story. You just have to know that anyone talking about it should not be taken seriously and is probably ultimately racist, to be honest. On January 23rd, 2018, Senator Dianne Feinstein and Congressman Adam Schiff published an open letter saying the hashtag, quote, gained the immediate attention and assistance of social media accounts linked to Russian influence operations. So the release the memo hashtag was a public effort on social media to have the Devin Nunes memo released to the public so everyone could read about how the Russiagate hoax started. That hashtag was particularly inconvenient for people like Adam Schiff, who were intimately involved in spreading the dishonest and false Russiagate hoax. The last thing Adam Schiff wanted was for that memo to be public, so he was contacting Twitter to get them to censor the hashtag in hoping that would stop it and people would not find out about the memo. Feinstein and Schiff said the Nunes memo distorts classified information, but note they didn't call it incorrect. And here's the excerpt. Specifically, on Thursday, January 18th, 2018, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Majority voted to allow members of the U.S. House of Representatives to review a misleading talking points memo authored by Republican staff that selectively references and distorts highly classified information. 
The rushed decision to make this document available to the full House of Representatives was followed quickly by calls from some quarters to release the document to the public. So the Nunes memo is being reduced to something that Republican staffers selectively put out in order to distort highly classified information in the public mind. Now, that is, again, what you might call a conspiracy theory. Those were baseless claims on no evidence. The Nunes memo was true at the time, and no one doubts it now. Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal followed suit, publishing a letter saying, we find it reprehensible that Russian agents have so eagerly manipulated innocent Americans. So David Nunes and Cash Patel are Russian agents, according to Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal. Now, Richard Blumenthal is a dyed-in-the-wool communist, and I am not making that up. I'm not being extreme or hyperbolic. This is the New York Post, December 15th, 2021. Democratic Senator Richard Blumenthal gives communism a boost. I talked about this on the podcast back then. Proving what adult he truly is, Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal last weekend did his best to boost the Communist Party. Blumenthal said he was excited and honored to speak at the awards ceremony for the Connecticut People's World Committee, an open Communist Party affiliate. Indeed, the event celebrated the 102nd anniversary of the Communist Party USA as it explicitly aimed to recruit new CPUSA members. Join the party, MC Ben McManus urged, in this epic time as we make good trouble to uproot systemic racism, retool the war economy, tax the rich, address climate change, secure voting rights, and create a new socialist system that puts people, peace, and planet before profits. Blumenthal plainly doesn't see that as different from his own agenda. His speech centered on, quote, holding corporations accountable for the basic treatment of the American people. What? Plainly ignorant of the Communist Party of the United States of America's long history of playing garden variety leftists as patsies, he blithely presented certificates of special recognition to the night's three Amistad Award winners, insisting they, quote, honor the great tradition of activism and standing up for individual workers, end quote. Blumenthal, ironically, is one of the wealthiest U.S. senators with an estimated worth of $100 million. In fact, his wealth is so vast, he sometimes isn't aware of all his investments, including a real estate development company linked to the Chinese government, the Washington Free Beacon reported. Communists unite. That is an editorial from the New York Post last year. Richard Blumenthal is indeed a dyed-in-the-wool communist as are many, many people in professional politics. It's just real. It does not matter who finds that word scary. Feinstein, Schiff, Blumenthal, and media members all pointed to the same source, the Hamilton 68 dashboard created by former FBI counterintelligence official Clint Watts under the auspices of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, the ASD. So this dashboard purports to be tracking the activity of the accounts linked to this hashtag, the ones interacting with this hashtag, posting this hashtag. 
And Taibbi shares some excerpts of reporting on that. One says release the memo is the top trending hashtag among Twitter accounts linked to Russian influence operations, according to Hamilton 68, a website launched last year that says it tracks Russian propaganda in near real time. Another excerpt, though Hamilton 68 launched just last summer, Morgan said he felt comfortable making that claim based on additional research and analysis. The quote unquote deep state has been a constant topic on the dashboard for months, but nothing like the past few weeks as the release the memo hashtag peaked. It went from 5% of the content back in September to where it's consistently around 15%, Schaefer said. And so all the news reports are referring back to this dashboard, this Hamilton 68 dashboard. That is what exists to substantiate the claims of this tie between Russian bots and the people using this hashtag. Some FBI guy set up some website and says he tracks Russian bot activity and all the news outlets just believe him, even though Twitter's own internal information does not support that. The dashboard, which featured a crude picture of Vladimir Putin deviously blowing evil red Twitter birds into the atmosphere, was vague in how it reached its conclusions. Inside Twitter, executives panned Watts, Hamilton 68, and the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Two key complaints. Hamilton 68 seemed to be everyone's only source, and no one was checking with Twitter. I encourage you to be skeptical of Hamilton 68's take on this, which as far as I can tell is the only source for these stories, said Global Policy Communications Chief and future White House and National Security Council spokesperson Emily Horn. She added, it's a comms play for ASD. Taibbi then attaches an email from none other than Yoel Roth. Roth writes, another thought. Is now the time we go public with the fact that any given user only counts once toward a trend? Given all the swirl around hashtag release the memo is based on Hamilton 68, which is based on raw tweet count, we'd be able to broadly refute it without actually sharing anything too sensitive. And Roth goes on. Carlos Manji, who was the policy vice president at Twitter, added, if ASD isn't going to fact check with us, we should feel free to correct the record on their work. Roth couldn't find any Russian connection to release the memo at all. I just reviewed the accounts that posted the first 50 tweets with release the memo and none of them show any signs of affiliation to Russia. Taibbi includes another email excerpt. Not sure who this one is from. TLDR, that means too long, didn't read the short version. Here's the summary. Schiff and Feinstein have released a statement calling on us to investigate what ASD Hamilton 68 says is Russian bots driving the release the memo hashtag and submit a report by Friday 126. Yoel and the IQ team have been monitoring engagement around both release the memo and now Schumer shutdown and engagement appears to be organic slash not driven by Russian bots. Comms started getting media queries on release the memo last Friday when ASD issued a press release saying this hashtag was being driven by Russian bots. We investigated, found that engagement was overwhelmingly organic and driven by strong VIT engagement, including WikiLeaks, Donald J. Trump Jr., 
Representative Steve King and others. And VIT means very important tweeters. Because the initial wave of news coverage did not include us, reporters who initially did not reach out to Twitter and ran with ASD as a single source, we've been in reactive mode since. Comms has been pushing back on background and cautioning off the record why reporters should be very skeptical of ASD's claims here. Reminder, ASD does not know that we have reverse engineered their dashboard and we're being careful to not hint at this in our pushback. We were just starting to see a virtually identical pattern playing out with hashtag Schumer shutdown when we started getting press inquiries about the Hill letter. Taibbi continues, a staffer for DiFi, that's Diane Feinstein, agreed it would be helpful to know the process by which Hamilton 68 decides an account is Russian, but only after Feinstein published her letter about Russian influence. So Twitter knows there's no evidence. They know that Hamilton 68 isn't finding any evidence, even though they're saying they are. And at this point, Senator Dianne Feinstein has already published a letter about Russian influence based on what Hamilton 68 pretended to have found. When Twitter spoke to a Blumenthal staffer, they tried to wave him off because, quote, we don't believe these are bots. So they were consistently warning these people, what you're saying almost definitely isn't true. Added another, quote, it might be worth nudging Blumenthal's staffer that it could be in his boss's best interest not to go out there because it could come back to make him look silly. And of course, that didn't work. And here we are five years later with that making them look silly. It only took five years. And this is one of those cases where they just don't care. They get the win they want in the media. They set the narrative. They set the public understanding of what's happening here. The release the memo hashtag is part of some Russian disinformation operation. And who cares if people find out in five years? It will already have worked by then and no one's going to care. That is pretty much what they always assume. One Twitter exec even tried to negotiate, implying an undisclosed future PR concession if Blumenthal would lay off on this. Quote unquote, it seems like there are other wins we could offer him. And that's so nice that they have this symbiotic quid pro quo relationship. We're going to help Richard Blumenthal in other ways. And that's while they're already trying to help him not look stupid. Blumenthal published his letter anyway. Execs eventually grew frustrated over what they saw as a circular process presented with claims of Russian activity, even when denied, led to more claims. They expressed this explicitly to Blumenthal's camp, saying, quote, Twitter spent a lot of resources, end quote, on this request and the reward from Blumenthal shouldn't be round after round of requests. Taibbi includes an email from Colin Crowell to Lauren Culbertson, Carlos Manji, Nick Pickles, and others at Twitter. He wrote, I think we can try to follow up with Blumenthal staffer again, but bottom line is we can't do a user notice each time this happens or people think it happens. Lauren and Carlos Let's huddle regarding how we tap KJ to help with Blumenthal on this. So they're trying to get Richard Blumenthal to stop saying that he's found Russian bots and this Russian operation on Twitter 
where none exists. And they're in contact with his staffers saying, hey, you've got to let the senator know that this stuff isn't true. It's going to make him look bad. And in the process, you're making us look bad. And in order to support his claims that are false, you keep requesting more work from us that will continue to be unfruitful. Eventually, Twitter staff realize Blumenthal isn't looking for real and nuanced solutions, but just wants to get credit for pushing us further. So they've created a problem that doesn't exist, and then they are speaking to the public in a way that makes it look like they're the ones fixing and investigating the problem that doesn't exist. Ultimately, senior executives talked about, quote unquote, feeding congressional trolls and compared their situation to the children's book. If you give a mouse a cookie in the story, if you give a mouse a cookie, he'll want a glass of milk, which will lead to a wave of other exhausting requests at the end of which he'll want a glass of milk and one more cookie. So that's how they're referring to a senator's office. The metaphor for the endless Russia requests was so perfect. One exec wrote, quote, I'm legit embarrassed. I didn't think of that first. That's how good the if you give a mouse a cookie reference was to Twitter employees, apparently. Despite universal internal conviction that there were no Russians in the story, Twitter went on to follow a slavish pattern of not challenging Russia claims on the record. Outside counsel from D.C. connected firms like Debevoise and Plimpton advised Twitter to use language like, quote, with respect to particular hashtags, we take seriously any activity that may represent an abuse of our platform. Oh, they take it seriously. That's good. The same way that Joe Biden takes classified materials very seriously. As a result, reporters from the AP to Politico to NBC to Rolling Stone continued to hammer the Russian bots theme despite a total lack of evidence. Conspiracy theorists, all of them. Russians weren't just blamed for release the memo, but Schumer shutdown, Parkland shooting, and even gun control now to widen the divide, according to the New York Times. So Russians were blamed for all of these hashtags. And coincidentally, all of these hashtags were upsetting regime narratives. This allows all the regime's minions, all the child brains at the intellectual kids table on Twitter to claim that anyone using these hashtags and promoting that side of these issues had fallen victim to a Russian disinformation operation. And of course they did, because those are the conspiracy theorists. They fall for anything, right? Regarding hashtag Schumer shutdown and hashtag release the memo, the internal guidance was, quote, both hashtags appear to be organically trending. NBC, Politico, the AP, The Times, Business Insider, and other media outlets who played up the Russian bot story, even Rolling Stone, all declined comment for this story. And Matt Taibbi was a longtime writer for Rolling Stone, and I think that explains why he's saying even Rolling Stone. He couldn't get a comment from Rolling Stone where he used to work. The staffs of Feinstein, Schiff, and Blumenthal also declined comment. Who did comment? Devin Nunes. And here is Nunez's comment to Matt Taibbi. 
Schiff and the Democrats falsely claimed Russians were behind the release the memo hashtag, all my investigative work. By spreading the Russian collusion hoax, they instigated one of the greatest outbreaks of mass delusion in U.S. history. And that is exactly right. There was never Russian collusion. The entire thing from its very roots was a hoax the entire time. And not only did many or even most Americans believe it at that point, which made them doubt Donald Trump and think that Donald Trump was an asset of a foreign adversary. Many still believe it to this day. And that's part of what obscures people's thinking when it comes to an actual fake president who actually stole an election with the help of our foreign adversaries, who also happens to have led a decades-long career in politics facilitating corruption with our foreign adversaries. They still believe Donald Trump is the bad guy because of Russian collusion that never happened. This release the memo episode is just one of many in the Twitter files. The Russiagate scandal was built on the craven dishonesty of politicians and reporters who for years ignored the absence of data to create fictional scare headlines. Taibi followed up with a Twitter files supplemental today. More Adam Schiff ban requests and deamplification. Staff of House Democrat Adam Schiff wrote to Twitter quite often asking that tweets be taken down. This important use of taxpayer resources involved an ask about a, quote, Peter Douche parody photo of Joe Biden. The DNC made the same request. They were basically asking for memes to be taken down. The real issue was Donald Trump retweeted the Biden pick. To its credit, Twitter refused to remove it, with trust and safety chief Yoel Roth saying it had obvious, quote, humorous intent and, quote, any reasonable observer, except apparently a Schiff staffer, could see it was doctored. Schiff staffer Jeff Lowenstein didn't give up, claiming there was a, quote, slippery slope concern here. Here's his full email. Hi, Lauren and all. Wanted to follow up on this question. We're familiar with the manipulated media policy, and I can see some reasons why, in context, the tweet would not violate it. But stepping back, it is an instance of a candidate using a machine-manipulated image, a crude one, to damage his opponent, which is the crux of the concerns that Representative Schiff and many others had about deepfakes and their abuse. We're prepared to accept that it doesn't fall under the policy given, but there's a slippery slope concern here. And I think it bears further explanation from Twitter why that is the case, because the next iteration of this could easily be more malicious and less obvious. Happy to have this discussion on a call if that's preferable, but let us know. Twitter also refused requests for bans of content about Schiff and his staff. For instance, complete suppression of any and all search results about Mr. Misko and other committee staffers. Twitter said this would not be conceivable. Even when Twitter didn't suspend an account, that didn't mean they didn't act. Schiff's office repeatedly complained about QAnon-related activity that were often tweets about other matters, like the identity of the Ukraine whistleblower or the Steele dossier. And what did they want taken down? Posts about articles in the Gateway Pundit, 
about how Representative Schiff's staffer, Sean Misko, worked with ex-CIA leaker Eric Charamella in the White House and is linked to Burisma-backed think tank. And apparently all of that somehow is QAnon? No, that's just real information out in the world about what really happened. Here's another tweet that they wanted taken down. It is an account called Randall Caledoni. Just seems like a random account, maybe an anon, who knows? Funny, all five were involved in the fake dossier paid for by Hillary Clinton, set up by Schiff while using Eric Charamella and Sean Misko, both employees, to lie in order to cover up the real quid pro quo by Biden. So Adam Schiff wanted these posts taken down from Twitter because they directly implicated one of his staffers, which implicates him. And all of it was going to be on the basis that this stuff is QAnon. Twitter policy at the time didn't ban QAnon, but deamplified such accounts. About the batch of tweets that included those above, Twitter execs wrote, we can internally confirm that a number of the accounts flagged are already included in this deamplification. Schiff's office had a concern about deamplification, though. It might make it harder for law enforcement to track the offending tweeters. So Twitter wouldn't suspend the accounts. They would just deamplify all the content coming from those accounts. But that wasn't good enough for Adam Schiff because that would make it too difficult for the world's premier investigative agency to track these accounts. And he caps it off with an email that was included in one of the drops last week. He highlights the part that says, we are curious whether any deamplification measures implemented by Twitter's enforcement team, which we appreciate greatly, could impede the ability of law enforcement to search Twitter for potential threats about MISCO and other HPSCI staff. So essentially, Adam Schiff, a member of the Intelligence Committee, wasn't satisfied simply with the deamplification. They worried that that deamplification might allow those posts to exist while simultaneously making it harder to search for them. And I think what's interesting about this is the level of absolute obsession Adam Schiff's office seems to have with protecting Sean Misko from anyone finding out about this story. You can imagine them just constantly searching for his name on Twitter every day. Taibi then followed up with a post on his Substack. The headline is America Needs Truth and Reconciliation on Russiagate. A new thread today in the Twitter files is about a fake news story from early 2018. Remember this one? Russian bots and trolls were blamed by virtually every major news organization in the country for amplifying the hashtag release the memo. The files contain a mass of emails from executives blowing up this ridiculous story once and for all. The release the memo scandal was one of the more shameful episodes in the recent history of our media, but taken seriously by all but one or two mainstream editors at the time, all citing the same dubious source, the Hamilton 68 dashboard trumpeted by former FBI counterintelligence official and current MSNBC contributor Clint Watts. They insisted Russians deployed Twitter bot armies to whip up cyber support for Republican Congressman Devin Nunes. Nunes had just released a classified memo 
alleging Democrats and the FBI used the infamous paid oppositional research dossier of ex-spy Christopher Steele to obtain secret FISA surveillance authority on Trump-connected figures like Carter Page, amid other improprieties. We now know Twitter internally found no evidence, as in zero, that Russians were anywhere near this story. Quote, I just reviewed the accounts that posted the first 50 tweets with release the memo, wrote a peaked trust and safety chief, Yoel Roth, in all other respects, as loyal a Democrat partisan as can be imagined. None of them show any signs of affiliation to Russia. These hashtags are organic, said a second. Not seeing it, said a third. This is a constant theme in the files. In addition to revelations about FBI censorship, shadow banning, the Pentagon's use of fake accounts, and suppression of true information about issues like COVID-19, the Twitter emails regularly expose the wide delta between what we were told about foreign threats and what a major platform seeing the raw data knew. In this case, for instance, the release the memo hashtag reportedly originated with Tracy Beans, the clearly American editor of Uncover DC. Even within the heavily partisan culture at Twitter, the regular Russia, Russia, Russia claims by politicians and media in self-serving pursuit of headlines caused eyes to roll. Even Twitter couldn't take this stuff seriously. Members, said one Twitter executive, look foolish if they cry Russia every time something happens on social media. We have a lot of problems in this country, and there are serious arguments to be had between blue and red about all sorts of issues, from immigration to the wealth gap to abortion and race. Well, that is according to liberal Matt Taibbi. But the country is currently paralyzed by distrust of media that runs so deep that it prevents real dialogue. And that situation can't be resolved until the corporate press swallows its pride and admits the clock has finally run out on its seven years of loony Russia conspiracies. It's over, you nitwits. It's time to stow the Mueller votive candles, cop to the coverage pileup created by years of errors, and start the reconciliation process. You'll be tempted to shout, but Trump, stop the steal, QAnon, derp. Don't do it. Don't be the Japanese soldier still clutching a bayonet to defend the forgotten atoll in 1960. Forget Trump. You need to clean your own house first. Expunging the years of absurd deceptions has to happen if media companies ever want wide audiences to trust them again. And that starts with admitting the obvious screw ups like this case. Now, in my view, Matt Taibbi seems to be missing the critical point here that these news outlets are broken beyond repair. They're not just going to be able to fix all their screw ups. Even publicly admitting them won't do it because the screw ups are so much deeper than we actually know, as deep as they go based on what we know and communications that we can see, like in these Twitter files. That still doesn't even touch what they know, how many politicians they were interacting with, what their internal deliberations were. These problems are so much deeper than that. Anything that we would get from these media companies in an attempt to rectify this stuff is almost certain to be limited hangout type material. We're not going to get the whole thing. And there's absolutely no way that any of these outlets are going to reorient themselves toward truth. 
That's not possible with their ownership. That's not possible with their business model. And it's not possible with the staff they have. They're not going to clean their own house. They're not going to admit they were wrong. And it's hard to imagine any of them actually admitting their own personal roles and responsibility in all of this and resigning. It's just not going to happen. Now, I've been wanting to cover the World Economic Forum all week as Davos 2023 approaches, and some of that is going to have to wait. But this is from January 9th on Jordan Schachtel's substack called The Dossier, dossier dossier.substack.com. You might remember Jordan Schachtel was on my Badlands show a couple weeks back talking about global governance. The headline here, exclusive, the dossier acquires confidential Davos attendees list. The dossier has acquired a confidential list of every individual, excluding some government officials who will be in attendance for the World Economic Forum's annual summit in Davos, Switzerland next week. The attendees list is a massive roster of some of the most influential and diabolical forces in the corporate, governmental and nonprofit world from the United States. This includes the likes of FBI director Chris Ray, the CEOs of Amazon, BlackRock and Pfizer, top officials at the Gates Foundation and in the Soros Network and the publisher of The New York Times, to name a few. The World Economic Forum, through its annual Davos conference, acts as the go-to in-person, invite-only, closed to ideological outsiders, policy and ideas shop for the global ruling class. The World Economic Forum is a fanatical political organization masquerading as a neutral entity with specific policy goals that involve centralizing power into the possession of hand-picked global elites as the only means to save the earth from a claimed climate emergency. And that is absolutely an accurate description of what they are attempting to do. They promise they can save the earth from the sun, but only if they accumulate all the power in the world, all the state power, the governmental power, all the corporate power, and naturally all the money. And once they have all that, they can tell everybody what they must do in order to save the planet. In fact, they can force everybody to do exactly what they say they must do in order to save the planet. They'll work with the UN and the WHO and NATO and the World Trade Organization and international banks, central banks. They're going to bring them all together in order to make people do the right things so the planet will be saved. The World Economic Forum is the chief coalition builder for what amounts to a public-private fascist movement. Over the years, they've partnered with the most influential individuals in business, along with central bankers, governmental head honchos, and international organizations in order to facilitate their top-down vision for technocratic tyranny, or what they call stakeholder capitalism. The WEF seeks to deliberately roll back human progress, innovation, and personal flourishing under the guise of saving the planet from a so-called climate emergency. Now, Jordan Schachtel is a great go-to for everything that concerns global governance. I suggest you go to dossier.substack.com and subscribe over there. I would expect that he'll be all over that conference next week. At the end of this article, he attaches 
a partially redacted list of all the attendees heading to Davos next week. And you can go down through that list. They're organized alphabetically by country and then alphabetically by organization. And as you scroll down, once you get to the UK and then the United States, you see so many organizations involved, you can't believe it. And you begin seeing a bunch of familiar names, Amnesty International, AXA Investment, Bain and Company, Bank of America, Barclays, BlackRock, Bloomberg, BP, that's the oil company, Beyond Petroleum, Chevron, Citibank, the City of London Corporation, CNBC, the Daily Telegraph, Deloitte, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Guardian, HSBC, Meta, Manchester United, MasterCard, NBC News, The New York Times, of course, Silver Lake Investments, Thomson Reuters, various universities, Unilever, Visa, Wall Street Journal, the Wellcome Trust. Oh, well, they have a huge role in COVID and the terrible COVID treatments and mitigations. AARP, Abbott Laboratories, another COVID. Accenture, AIG, Amazon, Anheuser-Busch, AstraZeneca, the Atlantic Council, Axios. Naturally, five people from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, BlackRock, Blackstone, Bridgewater Associates, the Brookings Institution, Cantor Fitzgerald, Cargill, Carlisle. It just keeps going on and on and on. I suggest you take a look at that. And as I've said many times, it's also worth going to the World Economic Forum's website and checking out the partners page so you can see all these organizations that are official partners of the World Economic Forum who support the World Economic Forum agenda and the World Economic Forum supports their corporate success as they bring these organizations into the fold in order to dominate and control everything. And all of that fascism is good because they're promising to save the earth from the sun just so long as we give them more power to do that whenever they ask and follow their orders all the time, especially when their orders include injecting ourselves with a dangerous and experimental new substance. And here's some of what the World Economic Forum will be talking about next week. This was published today on the World Economic Forum's website. The headline is, we're on the brink of a polycrisis. How worried should we be? They love making up new words. Polycrisis. That will be your new word to describe how scary everything is until we give them all the power so they can save the earth from the sun. The cascading and connected crises we find ourselves in at the beginning of 2023 demand a new descriptor to define the scale of the problems the world is facing. The war in Ukraine sent energy and food prices soaring. The resulting inflationary pressures ignited a global cost of living crisis, which has led to social unrest. On top of all that, carbon emissions continued to rise as economies reopened after the pandemic. And I hear all of this in Klaus Schwab's voice, which makes it hard for me to use my own voice, but I'm going to continue. The collective vocabulary stored in the world's great dictionaries didn't appear to hold a single word to sum up all this strife 
And they have a typo. They wrote single world. Whoops. Smartest people in the world with a typo right there in the second paragraph. Unbelievable. So here's a new one. Polycrisis. Here's your new word, everybody. Polycrisis. As soon as you realize that polycrisis is a word that can make you sound smart, then you go out and use it everywhere. And when people say, what are you talking about? You say, <laughs> yeah, I knew you were stupid. That is really what communist child brains are going to go do this weekend. We will now be in a polycrisis until the most powerful people in the world decide it's time to save us from the sun. The World Economic Forum's Global Risks Report 2023 uses the term to explain how, quote, present and future risks can also interact with each other to form a polycrisis, a cluster of related global risks with compounding effects such that the overall impact exceeds the sum of each part. So you see, the problems in themselves are totally fixable just by getting rid of the communism. But once you combine all the problems together, well, then you have a polycrisis. And the only way to fix a polycrisis is actually more communism. The risks that threaten a polycrisis. That wasn't a bad Klaus Schwab impression, I think. I don't know if I want to go too far with it because I've never tried it before and it will probably be annoying. So we'll just continue in my voice, but you can think about it in that voice, that impression I just did, or in Klaus Schwab's original voice. The report produced in partnership with Marsh McLennan and Zurich Insurance Group highlights multiple global risks and is a call to action to prepare the world for future shocks. Oh, something to look forward to. At the heart of the research is the annual Global Risks Perception Survey, which brings together leading insights from over 1,200 experts across the forum's diverse network. So they asked for input from all their fascist partners about exactly how they might be able to ruin the world the best in order to convince people to give them even more power. And this is what they've come up with. When asked to rank the most severe short and long-term risks, respondents identified the cost of living crisis as the most severe immediate risk, but saw the failure to mitigate the climate crisis as the biggest risk 10 years from now. The full rankings are illustrated in the chart below. So the cost of living crisis, that is what the World Economic Forum's members believe is the biggest problem, at least right now. In 10 years... It'll be the climate thing, except the world is supposed to end in like only seven years now. So, I mean, how can these World Economic Forum partners just ignore the climate for 10 years, pretending that people's inability to feed or house themselves is a bigger problem than saving the earth from the sun? Gosh, what are these people talking about? Speaking at the launch of this year's Global Risks Report, Sadia Zahidi, managing director at the World Economic Forum, said the risks we face will evolve slowly over the coming decade. Two years out, the experts are still expecting that the cost of living is going to be the number one risk on the global agenda. 
10 years out, six of the top 10 global risks are dominated by climate and the environmental risks associated with that, such as large scale involuntary migration, involuntary migration. Oh, they're going to migrate because of the climate. And you will say that that migration is involuntary. They didn't actually want to leave their homes. They were forced to leave the homes because the sun wouldn't stop attacking the earth. And it was attacking the earth so hard in the place where these people came from that they had to up and move. And that's true no matter what, even though the places that these people are often moving from are the same temperature that they always were. So if the justification they're giving for this involuntary migration isn't true, well, then what would involuntary migration be? And does it include World Economic Forum and global government connected NGOs and UN migration and drug cartels? And then... The exploitation of these involuntary migrants labor in the country they get to while that country also exploits their political power as well. So involuntary migration, what a phrase that is. Speaking alongside Zahidi, John Scott, head of sustainability risk at Zurich Insurance Group, shared his concerns about the lack of political foresight on the climate crisis. We are living in a world right now where what's scientifically necessary and what is politically expedient don't match. Well, you've been talking about it for 40 years and no one believes you anymore. So those things are never going to match. And they know that. Scott made a call for more public-private collaboration on mitigating climate impacts. More fascism, public-private collaboration, the government coordinating with corporations to tell the people what to do, to seize all their money through taxes that the corporation can then use to fix the problem that they are never going to fix because the problem doesn't exist. Solving climate change is the ultimate team sport. Yeah, they should start a... Uh professional solving climate change league. It isn't just coming from one sector. It has to be governments. It has to be business. It has to be the finance sector to work together to really address these complex and systemic issues. Persistent challenges. A majority of respondents to the GRPS saw little hope of a quick solution to the many crises the world is facing. When asked to characterize what they expected to see 10 years from now, 20% said, quote, progressive tipping points and persistent crises would lead to catastrophic outcomes. Horrifying. I am thoroughly horrified. Only 9% of respondents saw the world returning to a state of renewed stability with a revival of global resilience 10 years from now. Taken together, 46% did predict some level of improvement on the current global risk profile. Man, that's crazy that only 9% of the people who are solving all of these problems, solving in quotes, actually think things are going to improve in 10 years. It's odd, isn't it, to be giving all of our power away to people so that they can solve a problem 
that they don't believe they're going to solve? Well, okay, commies, I guess that's what you do once you've convinced people that a problem that doesn't exist really does exist, and we've got to give all our power away to you to solve that problem. Now, does that sound monumentally stupid? Of course it does. But you have to remember, these are the smartest people of all time, plus they have AI. Interconnected risks pose the greatest threat of a polycrisis. Well, since you just made that word up, maybe we should take a little while and examine that. Also, interconnected risks are the definition, according to you, of a polycrisis. So how can interconnected risks pose a threat of a polycrisis? Gosh, these smart people are just too smart for me. The intersection of current risks with emerging crises poses the greatest risk of a polycrisis. <laughs> oh man, I thought I could get through it and I just couldn't. The Global Risks Report 2023 draws a link between the cost of living crisis, the failure to mitigate the climate crisis, and the growing pressure on finite resources as a potential catalyst for such an event. Now, what resources are finite? Are they the resources we take out of the ground? No, that's not what they're talking about. Is it money? Well, no, it can't be money because these are the people who print money on behalf of the taxpayers of nations around the world whenever they want to. They're also purely in the business of collecting all of the resources of the world and putting them under their control. So how is... They're a finite resource problem here. And why is there growing pressure on those finite resources? What could this even mean? Then they present a little graphic. They call it the global risks landscape and interconnections map. And they are color coded based on the different threats. Purple is technological. Red is societal. Orange is geopolitical. Green, of course, is environmental and blue is economic. And so here are some of the various crises that we're facing. Adverse outcomes of frontier technologies. Oh, like AI messing up and destroying everything. Is that what you're talking about? Widespread cyber crime and cyber insecurity. Oh, like all the hacks you guys do. Digital inequality. Digital power concentration breakdown of critical information infrastructure. And for sure, all of those sound like enormous, massive, massive threats. But let's jump from the technological to the geopolitical. Here we have state collapse, interstate conflict, use of weapons of mass destruction. Really? You're expecting that in the next 10 years, huh? Terrorist attacks? Gosh. Ineffectiveness of multilateral institutions. So the multilateral institutions they're talking about, these global governing bodies that they set up and work with, they're worried about those things not working. And again, they're kind of talking about the risks to their own agenda, not to actual people out there in the world. So there's probably some legitimate concern there that maybe NATO isn't going to get them as far as they thought. Maybe the UN isn't going to get them as far as they thought. And they have another threat geoeconomic confrontation. 
the environmental threats, environmental damage incidents, failure to mitigate climate change, biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse, natural resource crises, failure of climate change adaptation, and natural disasters and extreme weather. Man, they have a lot of stuff planned. How exactly are they anticipating biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse? What are they planning on doing to the world that would cause any of that? Because the sun shining down on the world is not going to cause that. The economic crises in blue, the proliferation of illicit economic activity. Oh, you mean like massive, widespread, global fraud? Like the kind you guys participate in literally all the time? Is that proliferation of illicit economic activity? Is that what you're talking about? The collapse of a systemically important supply chain. Oh, how's that going to happen? Failure to stabilize price trajectories. So like the inflation you guys caused on purpose. Oh, debt crises. Those could happen from all the money printing. Got it. Asset bubble burst. Oh, there's going to be an asset bubble burst again, like the tech bubble and like the real estate bubble that caused the financial collapse in 2008. Got it. Or a prolonged economic downturn. But that's just a little tiny dot, which means it's probably not that bad. But let's get into the societal dangers. The red ones, these are all over the map. They interconnect with so many different things. Oh, there's just lines everywhere. And once you look at all the lines, you'll see things like large scale involuntary migration is immediately in touch with environmental damage incidents and failure to mitigate climate change and also state collapse and geoeconomic confrontation. But that's not all. It also directly connects to proliferation of illicit economic activity. You see, somehow all of those things are part of the large scale involuntary migration problem because everything is interconnected. And this is how you create a poly crisis. Take all of these tiny little problems that you've caused that people have recognized as bad, and then you put them all together, and then you have a poly crisis. And the only way to defeat a poly crisis, well, the solution is the same for when you're trying to save the earth from the sun. You have to give the World Economic Forum and all its partners all the power and money and resources in the world. And then once you do, and they don't need any more, then they will consider solving the problem sometime in the future. Right now, we're just going to stay in the planning stage. And in the future, we're going to get that problem solved. And there's a chance, just a chance, that even with all the power and money and resources you've already given us, eh, once we get through this planning stage, who knows how much more we'll need. More societal problems? Misinformation and disinformation. Erosion of social cohesion. Hey, Maybe you guys shouldn't have uh, done all that woke stuff and tried to tell everybody that everybody else is racist and hateful all the time when it's really just you guys starting a hate movement like you've always done in the past. Ah, remember the 1930s and 40s. Congratulations, Klaus. 
severe mental health deterioration. Now, how would that happen? I thought that we were all going to be in the metaverse and in the metaverse, surely everybody in there is going to be the picture of perfect mental health, infectious diseases, chronic health conditions, employment crises, cost of living crisis, collapse or lack of public infrastructure and services. And the World Economic Forum is going to fix all of this because it's all interconnected with climate change. And they're going to solve climate change. They are going to force the sun to stop attacking the earth. Demand for food, water, and energy are rising as a result of population growth and socioeconomic advancement. The expansion of renewable energy systems is creating an unprecedented demand for rare minerals and metals. The gap between demand and supply of these resources could have catastrophic consequences, including biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, trade wars, and armed conflict between nations, the report warns. Now, it's important to remember that they own and control all of those resources, and they're all going to be flying into Davos on private jets. Naturally, they're concerned about population growth. How does that work? And what's the solution to that part of the polycrisis? Carolina Clint, risk management leader, continental Europe at Marsh, shared her concerns about the possible repercussions of these connected crises. We need to take a step back and start planning for the unexpected. I think, generally speaking, most of the things that we worry about are too short-term and modest. So take a long-term and holistic view of the risks on the horizon. I do think that if we work together, we are able to prepare for and respond to these compounding risks with better agility. So we need to start planning for the unexpected. Our current worries are too short-term and too modest so what we need to do is combine them all into a polycrisis. At that point, we will understand just how scary the future is and be willing to turn over more power. A challenge to global leadership. The Global Risks Report 2023 suggests the cascading crises facing the world are not going away anytime soon because they're just going to keep creating more problems to solve. That's just their thing. You know, it's their thing. Zahidi says the report shows leaders are preparing for a long road ahead, but there is modest optimism that the crises will recede in the longer term. Leaders are facing multiple crises that are happening at the same time. So essentially a polycrisis. When we asked leaders what they're expecting to happen, well over 80% said that we are looking at consistent ongoing crises that are compounding each other on an increasingly volatile trajectory. Although 10 years out, we're looking at that number going down to about 50%. So apparently the World Economic Forum has a rosy outlook on the future. Is that what we're told? Everybody understands that the poly crisis is horrifying, but in 10 years from now, it'll be maybe a little less horrifying. That's the good news. But hey, at least it sounds like the World Economic Forum understands all of these problems in the world because they themselves have created them. But hey, at least they're promising to solve all of them, assuming we give them all the power and money and resources and control they could ever possibly 
dream of. And you might say, it seems like certain regimes of the past have tried to do this before and it never really worked out that well. But don't worry about that at all because now we have computers. And these people, they sound really nice. I mean, maybe they have some bad ideas, but they sound really nice. Don't they, Kami? You're right. Everything's going to be just fine. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.CancelCouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. 
And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!